Once again, as we begin our time of worship in the Word of God, I'd ask you to bow with me for a word of prayer and entreat God's favor upon us. Lord, we are once again ever dependent upon you for all of our understanding of your great Word. We know we need you in every way. We are dependent upon you just to open our minds, our hearts, illumine them. Father, oftentimes when we read your Word, when we study your Word, we at times have difficulty by way of taking the truth that we know and what we've heard and putting it to practice in our life, applying it. Help us to do that. Help us to think through that. May your spirit be upon us as we learn of him this morning, that we would understand what you have for us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may have noticed in your bulletin uh, a, a different title this morning for our time in the Word of God. I want to take a break this morning from Romans and speak to us from our evening series that I have entitled, The Final Instructions for a Saved People. For those of you who have missed that series, I've entitled it that because we are in that study, in a section of John's Gospel in which Christ is no longer ministering among the crowds. He is alone with just his closest disciples. It is just hours now before his arrest and subsequent crucifixion. And there is a great concern in the air for them. God in the flesh is concerned for these men. In just a short time, he will no longer be with them physically. The world as they know it, the world in which they are living is going to be turned upside down. There will be, in fact, trouble coming at them from every side. Jesus has already told them and is even intimating to them again that the world is going to hate them. They are going to be taken away and put in prison, many of them. And when it is over, when this crucifixion of Christ is over, they will be just huddled together as a small group of people. We know 120 of them together, Jesus' followers waiting for what would take place next. These 11 men now with Jesus Christ in the upper room, Judas having already left, they have a responsibility to act. They have a responsibility to live according to what Christ has told them. To live out what Jesus Christ has commanded them as he has walked with them. But in troubling times, how are they going to actually find the strength to do it? As Christians, we oftentimes sense the same kinds of things in our own Christian life. We study the truths of the Scriptures. We are told repeatedly just how it is that we are to live in attitude and action. We are studying even in the book of Romans all that Paul has been teaching us there, learning the doctrine of justification, learning to have a right understanding of the doctrine of justification and the implications that go with that, as well as the opposite side, learning what, what it means to not rightly understand justification and the implications that go with that. 
We know that there are certain things that we are to be doing as Christians and other things that we should not be doing, all of which are crucial to our Christian life. All of them are reflections of our faith, just like we read this morning in Second Peter. These things that we are to be diligently practicing, diligently applying in our faith. And what is so wonderful is that there is another side to what the Bible teaches about our Christian practice. That is what it tells us that Christ has already done for us. There is the responsibility of us as Christians to do what God has commanded us to do, and yet on the other side there is the reality of what Christ has already done for us. And here in John chapter 14, this becomes particularly in this event, when we look at the final instructions of Christ, a very comforting section for us. In troubling times, I find it extremely comforting to my soul that what Jesus says to comfort these men is not primarily commandments that they are responsible to obey. It is not Jesus saying, well, do this, do this, do this, do this, and do this, and you will be happy, although that certainly is a reality of truth of Scripture that ought to resonate in our hearts. But what comforts me and what comforts them here is that Christ deals mostly with the promise of what He is about to do for them, and the reality from this text is what He has done for us. That's comforting to know. Jesus' message of comfort is not so much what we need to do. Jesus' words of comfort in the monumental time when he's about to exit stage right from this earth is to realize what he has already done for us. So what needs to bring comfort to our heart in times of trouble is not beating ourselves up with the next reality of what we must do, even though those are essential for the outworking of our own Christianity. In fact, if you notice in John chapter 14, he says in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. He says in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. The outworking of a love for Jesus Christ and the outworking of a real faith is uh, obedience to the things of Christ. But what is important here that I want to highlight that brings true comfort is when we realize that Jesus, and particularly in the context of this text, in the case of the disciples, what comforts is what he was going to do since he's still walking the earth in the context of this text and in the case of you and I, what he has already done. Verse 16 through 31 of chapter 14 is the very center of Jesus' message of comfort for all of us. Because it is here that we learn about the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
the very one who empowers us to continually obey the commands of Christ is the very one Christ promises will come after he has gone from earth. When we think about our Christian life, the demand for obedience is very high. It is very narrow. It reaches even new heights when we are in the valleys of difficult times. But His power is in us. This is crucial for us to understand. This is crucial for us to get in our minds. His power is in us, and the comfort of all comforts is knowing that as a Christian we can keep His commandments because we do love Him. And these comforting promises are only for those whose lives are characterized by faith, characterized by obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a reflection of our love for Him. So listen to Christ's words here in chapter 14, verses 16 to 31. Jesus says to his disciples after he has already displayed in chapter 13 his great love for them by by being a sacrificial servant to all of them. In the first part of chapter 14, he doesn't want their hearts to be troubled. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled at what I'm telling you. In fact, stop being troubled is the tenet of what he says there. And then he gets to verse 16. He says, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more. But you will behold me because I live. You shall live also in that day. You shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and, will lo- and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now... I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and 
he has nothing in me. But the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. So arise, let's go from here. This is a monumental promise, a monumental promise. And the implications that this promise has for our lives as Christ's disciples is even more staggering than the promise itself. We cannot miss the fact that it comes out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, on the heels of the words of Christ that we do not necessarily like to hear, especially when it's times of difficulty. I read them earlier, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those were the words just prior to Jesus saying the words that I just read to us. If you love me, You will keep my commandments. We don't like to hear that. Real love for Christ is not just words. Real love for Jesus Christ is not having a good feeling about Jesus. Our words about our love for Christ carry very little weight, very little water when it comes to our actual spirituality. Words are cheap, as the modern day vernacular goes. What really counts, what really shows us to be true, is that our lives are a demonstration of a love for Christ. A demonstration of a love for Christ. Being a disciple of Christ means being holy. Holy. Because Christ is holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy said last Sunday night, it would be a travesty of God. It would be a monumental sadness of the justice of God. In fact, it wouldn't be justice at all if God said to us, be holy, but then did not give us the means by which we could fulfill what he asked us to do. Being a disciple of Christ is to be holy, and in those whose lives are a demonstration of holy living, Christ has fulfilled his promise of giving them the Holy Spirit. You notice in John 14, verse 11, Christ has commanded them to believe. Notice that? Believe me. Believe me. And so if we love Christ... We believe in Christ. Those who believe in Christ receive the Holy Spirit. And it is because of the Holy Spirit that we continually keep His commandments. The word keep, in verse 15, the word keep means really to guard. To guard. Jesus could have easily said, If you love me, you will guard my commandments. It means to watch over, to keep view of, to take note of, to take them seriously, to regard them with all seriousness. As many of you know, I spent seven years of my life in the military. I was, for the first several years, a security police officer guarding the resources of the United States government. 
I watched over them. It was my job. To guard them, to watch over them, to literally keep them in view. To never remove my eyes from them because of the value they had to our country. That is what those who love Christ do with his commandments. They value what he has commanded and they guard it. We continually keep it in view. Now, these were hard words for these 11 disciples to hear. These were hard words. These were confusing words for them. They knew in their hearts that they said they loved Christ. They had, in fact, left everything to follow Jesus. They wanted to do in every way what he asked. And yet, they knew that they were weak. More importantly, Christ knew. Christ knew that they could not do it through their own human efforts alone. And so he comforts them. How? Through the promise of the Holy Spirit. Listen, guys, it's to your benefit that I go away. It's to your benefit that this happens. It is to your benefit. Sometimes we don't see the benefit. Sometimes we look at the difficulty and we don't see the benefit at all. Why? Because we're looking so earthly and yet Jesus is saying, look, this is a benefit to you. How are they going to do what Christ is asking them to do when he's gone? In the difficult moment, it would be through the power of the Holy Spirit. what I want us to focus on this morning, and I want to begin this morning for us to see seven implications for our lives, seven implications for our lives that ought to comfort us through any troubled time. In other words, this is power to obey no matter the circumstance, power to obey no matter the circumstance. There are seven implications that I want to draw from these verses. And just so you know, for those of you who haven't been to Sunday night, if you want the whole list, you've got to come to Sunday night. You're only going to get part of the list. That's not the way it was actually supposed to be, but that's all we're going to have time for. By God's design, he wants you at Sunday night. Number one is this. The first implication is this. God is actually with us. Troubling times, difficult circumstances, the Christian life, I have to obey. I'm I'm commanded to obey. I'm commanded to to exercise my love for Christ. My love for Christ is shown in those ways, even in the, the worst of moments in life. But it's difficult to do that. The first implication that I must remember from the promise of God is this. God is actually with us. Jesus says in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give another helper, that he may be with you forever. I just want you to let that sit for a moment on your mind and your heart. This isn't a verse we run to often and we memorize. We ought to. Maybe you ought to memorize John 14, 16. I will send 
a helper. I will ask the Father, and he is going to send a helper that may be with you forever. The creator of everything is actually with us. Do you think about your Christian life like that? I know sometimes we think, oh, yeah, we got the Holy Spirit. But, but I don't think we, we let the weight of that sit on us. We have actually the divine power of God, 2 Peter chapter 1. You have been given everything for life and godliness, everything you need. We have God with us in the hour of greatest turmoil, in the hour of greatest trouble. In the time when we fear the most, in the moment when we think we are alone, the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to know that we do not have to go it alone. We have a divine helper. Some of your Bibles say another counselor. Others say another comforter. I love that because Jesus is saying, look, I'm with you. I'm with you now. I've told you I'm going to leave. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. I'm going to send another, another counselor, another comforter, another helper, one just like me. Those are great words. God is all of those things. I think the best word here is the word used in the New American Standard or the New King James, and that's helper. He's the helper. You may not think you need a helper, but we all need a helper. It's a great word in the original language. I'm sure many of us know us. Parakletos literally is made up of two different words. Kleo or kaleo, which means to call. To call or or one who is called. The other word is para. Para just simply means alongside or beside. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to ask the Father to give you one who is going to be along with you. He's going to be with you. He is the parakaleo, the parakletos, the paraclete, as you might hear it. Not parakeet. Paraclete. And the important truth of that is simply this. It is not just anybody who is the helper. It is rather another helper, as Christ says, and it is extremely important that we understand what he means when he says another helper. I've intimated to it already. It's it's not another of a different kind. It is another of the same kind as Christ. It wouldn't be very helpful if Christ is not God. And Christ said, I'm going to ask God and he'll send you another helper. And he used the term, another of the same kind. If you're not God, I don't need your help. I I need God here. I, I need the power of God working in this. There are two Greek words for another. One speaks of another of a different kind. If I gave us all apples, 
And some I gave golden delicious apples, and others I gave Granny Smith apples. All of us would have apples, but some would have apples of a different kind. The category is the same, but the kind is different. But they wouldn't be of the same kind. It would be the same essence, same qualities, but it wouldn't be the same. Jesus isn't saying that here. This is another of the same kind. I will ask the Father, and he will give you one who will come to dwell with you, one of the same kind as I am. This is God the Spirit. So not only will you not be alone, not only as a Christian are you not alone, but you have God with you. You have God with you. The one we have with us has the same compassion as Christ. He has the same power as Christ. He has the same goal as Christ. He has the same attributes as Christ. The same love for us that Christ has for us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit... They all are one. The Spirit has all of the essence, all of the attributes of God the Father or God the Son. We have everything we need for life and godliness. We have God actually with us. What a comfort this would have been for these men. Yes, I may be going away, but you have another of the same kind coming. You don't need to be troubled. For three years, Christ himself had been there physically. He had been their present paraclete, their present one alongside of them to lead them. And now he's promising that the only thing that would change is that he would no longer physically be with them, but that they would still have one who was exactly like him. That's the first implication that we have to understand about our own Christian life. This is the first implication that we cannot just let light lightly upon our hearts when we think about our Christian walk and, and when we think about the doctrine of justification that we're learning in the morning and the implications of all that for us to obey and to, to reflect the realities of our life of Christianity before a dying and lost world and in the midst of trouble. The first profound reality is that the Spirit of God God is actually with us. It isn't theory. It isn't isn't some kind of wishful thinking. It isn't some kind of weird mystery kind of idea. It is God actually with us and in us. So to say that we cannot do it when God has commanded us to do it is to say that God is unable to do it. You see, that it's very easy for us as Christians to get into the place where we suddenly become blasphemers of God. We would never describe ourselves that way. We would never say that we're blasphemers of God. We would never willingly want to do that, and yet suddenly we become that way when we say, I can't do that. I can't overcome that sin. I cannot live as God has called me to live. I can't do what he's asking me to do. Oh, yes, you can. You have God with you. So that's the first profound implication. 
The second we have is this. Notice what he says. We have not only God with us, but we have an everlasting union with God. Notice what he says. I will ask the Father, verse 16, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you. How long? Forever. Forever. This is the comfort for every believer. This is the reason that those whom believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ cannot ever lose their salvation. If you want to have an exclamation point to the reality of your assurance, this is it. Not only does God come to be with us, but He is with us forever. If God is with you, then you are truly a believer and you can never lose God. The Spirit never leaves us. Verse 17 confirms that. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold Him or know Him, but you know Him. Why? Because He abides with you and will be in you. There is reality for these disciples and there is prophecy of what is about to happen. We are Christians that live on the second half of that final phrase. He is in us. He is in us. This doesn't seem like new information to us, but it certainly was to them. God in us? God dwelling in us, they're Old Testament saints. This is the New Testament, these are the Gospels, but Christ hasn't died yet. This is Old Testament idea. That's why Jesus says he abides with you and will be in you. They knew that the Spirit would come upon the people for a specific task. They knew when somebody did something, when a prophet spoke or when all these kinds of miracles happened, that the, a Spirit came upon them, but they did not indwell them. Even at the baptism of Christ, the Spirit, what? Rested upon Him like a dove. So they knew of the Spirit's work, but now Christ is saying that He would actually be in them. The whole dynamic is changing. They would have an actual, everlasting union with God that could not end that would not be taken away. He would take an eternal and uninterrupted dwelling place within their life. I was reading this week some of the commentators on this passage, and one author said it this way, quote, What a privilege it is in the grace of God that he would plant his very essence in us. Every moment of our existence throughout all eternity, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit, not just with us, but also within us, unquote. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says it this way. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, talking about in him, he means in Christ. After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who 
is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Listen, God dispatched the Holy Spirit to dwell within you to not only empower you to do what God has commanded you to do, but also to seal you for the day when he will ultimately glorify you. People always walk around and say, oh, what's, what do we need to get into heaven? What's my ticket to heaven? Listen, I'll tell you what, you better know Jesus Christ. And when you know Jesus Christ, the spirit will be in you because that's going to be the seal of your inheritance. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, for we have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Why? Because you have the Spirit within you. So Jesus says to these guys, listen, here it is. Don't be troubled. I'm leaving the area, but don't worry about that. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How are we going to do that, Lord? How do we keep your commandments? This is so troubling to us. Our hearts are so anxious. How are we going to do that? Listen, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another helper. God is actually going to be with you. He's going to be in you. And get this, guys, it will be forever. It will be forever. There's non-temporal nature to this reality of the Holy Spirit. So you have not only a relationship with God actually with us, but you have a forever union with God. The third comforting implication that flows from the promise of the Spirit is this. With the Spirit, with the Spirit comes spiritual insight. With the Spirit comes spiritual insight. We need to notice and embrace what Jesus is telling to these disciples. Because he says, the spirit that is to come, verse 17, is, you notice, the spirit of truth. This helper that I'm going to ask God for, this paraclete who's going to come forever, is the spirit of truth. Now think about the implications of just that small little phrase because that means that the modern day doctrine, and I call it that purposefully, the modern day doctrine of relevance is irrelevant to the Christian. You say, what do you mean? Well, the postmodern doctrine of relevance says, in essence, that there is truth in general but that truth is not exclusive. In other words, there is truth out there, but that truth is not exclusive to other truth that is out there. In other words, whatever you believe to be true is in fact truth, even if it contradicts other truth, simply because you believe it. That's why it's true. That's the doctrine of relevance in a nutshell. And in the evangelical world, that has devastating implications. Why? Because the Bible, which is the absolute truth, tells us that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. It doesn't say he is a way. It doesn't say he's one of many. It says he is the only way. But, For those who embrace this new doctrine of relevance that is out in 
modern-day liberal evangelicalism even, they would say that that can't be true because it makes biblical Christianity the exclusive way to heaven. In other words, it excludes any other way, and so the doctrine of relevance downplays the exclusivity of Jesus Christ simply because it's an unbending barrier to the doctrine of relevance. The truth, by its definition, is exclusive, isn't it? Truth, by its very definition, is an exclusive reality. There cannot be many differing truths. Why? Because truth is truth. And we as followers of Christ have been given, notice, the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. You say, well, it's just a spirit of truth. No, you notice exclusivity is built right into the phraseology of God as he gives us these words. The spirit of truth, the The is a definite article. It means this is the only one, the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth, exclusive. It means that there are no others. This is the spirit of truth. He is both the essence of truth because he is God and he is the one who is capable and does lead us into all truth. And he only leads in truth. Only those who willingly receive Christ have the spirit of truth. Those who reject Jesus Christ do not have the spirit of truth, regardless of what they say is truth. The unsaved do not have the spirit of truth. Therefore, they do not understand the truth. You say, how do you know that? Verse 17 says that. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Why can't the world receive the spirit of truth? Because the world rejects Jesus Christ, and the spirit of truth exalts only one thing, and that is Christ. You cannot have the spirit of truth and not have Christ. They both are complementary. The spirit highlights Christ. Christ calls for the helper who is the spirit of truth. You cannot have one without the other. And so the world cannot receive the spirit of truth because it does not behold him or know him. You know what Christ is saying? Listen, he said to the disciples before, listen, I say to you, you need to believe in me, right? If you believe in God, believe in me also, he says in verse 1 of chapter 14. If you believe in God, believe in me. God and I are one. Now you know what he's saying? I and the Spirit are one, which means the Spirit and God are one. The triune trinity is right there. You cannot have one without the other. They do not know him. They cannot behold him because they do not embrace me. Listen, this is, this is the very reason why you and I, through human reason, cannot convince someone of the validity and veracity of the Word of God. Try as you must. Try as you will. Try with all your logic that you can. Drum up the best arguments of the day. Use all human reasoning that you can get. You will not convince someone by human reason that this is the Word of God. These are spiritual words, understood only by those who have the Spirit of truth. The world cannot receive Him because it does not have a relationship with Christ. 
You can dump all the facts you want about Christ upon the ears of the unregenerate. You can make the best presentation possible. Use all of the best human evidence to convince them and they will still conclude that Christ is worthless. Why? Because they do not have the spirit of truth. God must work on them. The spirit of God must change them. Just listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian believers. We know it. We've read it. We've studied it. We studied 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Now there's another reason why God said the spirit, so that we might know, so that we might have a full understanding of what God has taught us, what God's shown us, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ and all the benefits that come with it, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak about, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. We combine spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You see, he can't get it. He can't understand it. He can hear the words. He can even receive what the sentence is saying. But he cannot understand them. He cannot understand the intent in them. He cannot understand the real meaning of them. It's not as if the meaning is secretive. It's that it's spiritually appraised. So Paul is simply saying this, the only people who can truly understand the truth of God's word are those who have the Spirit of God indwelling them. Those who do not have the Spirit of truth, Paul calls them natural men. They cannot understand God's word at all. Oh, they can say a lot of things about it. They can say they have a great understanding about it. They can understand the language. They can understand the structure of a sentence of speech. But they do not understand what it means by what it says. Why? They don't have the spirit of truth. Christ says we have spiritual insight into what God is saying. We have it. Not we ourselves, not in our humanness. We have it because we have the spirit of truth. Not because we are smarter than other people. There was not many wise, not many noble, Paul says to the Corinthian believers. Look, you weren't chosen because you were some wise person who just figured it out. No, it's because we have the spirit of truth. He is in us and given to us. That's why we have spiritual understanding. For the disciples, this was a confusing concept. This is something they just didn't understand at the time. Actual union with deity? Actual union with how, how, how does that work? This was foreign to their minds. And so Jesus tells them, look at verse 20. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. In what day? In that day. In what day? In the day when the Spirit comes to dwell in you. Then you will understand. You see, the Spirit's going to lead you into that truth. For them, that day was the day of Pentecost. It's 
Spirit was upon them. Spirit came to dwell within them. Immediately they understood. They understood the relationship of God with Christ and how it related to their relationship with him. You say, how do you know that? Acts chapter 2 tells us that. What Jesus is prophesying here happened. Peter stands up amongst the crowd. He preaches one of the most powerful sermons that was ever preached and explained exactly who Christ is. He explains exactly who the Father is. And he explains to them why Christ died, why Christ rose again, and what all of that meant in reference to them, the Jews. Peter seemed to rarely understand anything. All of a sudden stands up, clearly articulates the truth concerning Christ. Why? Because he was indwelt with the spirit of truth. We have God with us. We have God with us forever. We've been given spiritual insight. So what's going to bring comfort to us? The same thing that's going to bring comfort to these 11 as they face trouble. As they face what's ahead, it's the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. For you and I, it's the reality that we have the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. But it's not just a promise, it's a reality for us living our practical Christian lives. It's what strengthens us, it's what what helps us in our walk of faith because we are called to follow Christ, we are called to be examples of Christ, we are called to be imitators of God, Paul says. Well, we can't do that, how do we imitate Christ in and of our own strength? We cannot do that, the Spirit strengthens us to do that as we submit ourselves to the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 says to have the Spirit in you. Be filled with the Spirit. The equation to that verse is in Colossians where he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. The Holy Spirit does one thing. He highlights Christ. He highlights the word of Christ. He highlights the living word. He highlights the written word because it's all about Christ. And if you want to walk by faith, if the Spirit is controlling you, follow the word of God. Do what the word of God says. You can do it because you're empowered by the Spirit. Christ wanted them to know that God was with them. Don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. Stop being troubled. God is with you. You have one just like Christ with you, the Holy Spirit. He wanted them to know that they are united with God forever. Not only is God with us, but God never will leave us. He's with us forever. How long is that? Forever. Third, Christ wanted them to know that they would have spiritual insight. Why? Because they had the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. Something the world could not have. Something the world does not have. In Christ, beloved, we 
have all of those things and more. We have all of that and more. Like I said, you'll have to get the other four next Sunday night. We have all of that and more. So come, come to Sunday night and find out the rest of it so that you're not walking around limping. Christian, limping, only having part of your implications. We get the privilege to worship God through our communion time together. We'll do that in just a moment. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these things this morning, the truth about your spirit, the great joy we have knowing that you have not left us alone. Certainly we know physically you're not on this earth, but you certainly are with us always. Lord, sometimes we live as if that's not the case. Help us remember this. Live according to it as we walk by faith, as we walk according to the word richly dwelling in us. For you lead us in truth. Thy word is truth. Help us to to do that by your grace, according to your power, as we submit ourselves to you. That you might be glorified in it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.